Hey friends, just a brief word. We have some bonus content coming out of this episode that is available for our patrons. So if you don't yet support I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere on Patreon, just follow the link in the show notes or simply go to patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock to support the show for as little as a dollar an episode to unlock this bonus content. Behind the scenes conversations with Ross Davies. Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is brought to you by MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wes Express, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 219, Baker Street Almanac. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, since you became a strong man. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Well, well, welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And Bert, are you, are you ready to have everything you say be chronicled? Because this will be in somebody's almanac in the future. Oh, I hope so. I, I wonder how they're going to record my pauses because, you know, I always like to have these little emotional hiccups in the middle of a sentence so that people pay attention to how I'm going to end my thought. That's very good. Well, you know, our uh, a lot of people, when they're listening to podcasts, they use apps that automatically skip through silences. So now we just need to figure out how to do that on the printed page. How do you skip ahead when there's a oh, gap between paragraphs? Well, if if what you want to do is avoid listening to me, I could put my wife on and she's got some tips. That, uh... <laughs> I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. No question. Well, the show notes for this episode are available at iHose.co slash iHose219. That's all lowercase. That'll take you directly to iHearofSherlock.com to this specific episode where you can find all the kinds of links and other material that you will need. I guarantee you will need these links because we're going to be talking about some places you need to visit on the web for material that you can acquire. Uh, also, while you're there, leave us a comment. You can uh, donate to the show by becoming a patron. Just hit that uh, Become a Patron button at uh, patreon.com slash Sherlock. As little as a dollar a month helps support the show, and we do appreciate it because it helps us with costs like email and sound hosting and web hosting and uh, prize acquisition and all the rest. Speaking of prizes, stay tuned at the end of this interview because we do have another canonical couplet coming up where you have a chance to win a prize, and I think it will be related to today's interviewee. So it's always lovely when we can tie our prizes to the actual topic of the show. Uh, Bert, before we move into uh, interview territory, I should mention that uh, we've gotten a lot of wonderful responses from family, friends, colleagues of John Lellenberg. Uh, we did a show here a couple of episodes ago remembering him and his untimely passing, and uh, the, the response has been uh, universal. Um, just a wonderful chance for people to get to know John, to hear him again and hear the context in which he contributed to our little hobby. 
I'm very pleased about that. And I was very pleased, and I'm sure you were too, to get, um, you know, such an, an encouraging note from Michael McKean, who is the current head of the Baker Street Irregulars, where. Or just Michael Keen. Michael McKean. (laughs) Michael McKean is a noted actor. Um, Michael Keen, who, um, you know, told us in a couple of sentences about his long uh, friendship with John and um, how much he also enjoyed the show. And um, so I'm very pleased about that. You know, that was that was a labor of love. And and John's passing was um, very untimely and and surprising to many of us. Well, our guest today, Ross Davies, BSI, invested in the Baker Street Irregulars as the Temple, received a Bachelor of Arts from Washington University and a JD from the University of Chicago. He lives in Washington, D.C., associates with the Red Circle in that city, and teaches law at George Mason University. The standard epigraph in his course materials is, nothing clears up a case so much as stating it to another person. Most of his Sherlockian writing has had legal or cartographical angles, or both. And he edits The Green Bag, which describes itself as an entertaining journal of law, and its satellite publications, one of which we are going to talk with Ross about. And he also operates a website devoted to Sherlockian toasts. Ross, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here with you and with the inimitable Burt Wolder. <laughs> I should say, welcome back. This is not your first time on the show, is it? No, it is not. Although I've never, I think, been permitted on here unchaperoned. <laughs> 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 is that the case? Oh, my goodness. Well, the last time we talked with you was uh, episode 212, where we talked about all things uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, the Conan Doyle Society and the Conan Doyle Review and uh, whatnot. We also had you on, gosh, uh, to talk about building an archive. I think we, we talked with you and with Glenn Maranker on That's that right. one. And uh, digging back a little more, episode 137, Boxes from Royalty, where we talked about those World War I boxes that went out to the uh, English troops. You were on Chaperone that time. so Actually, that's right. But I was very young, probably not as headstrong then. <laughs> it, it feels like ages ago. Well, uh, <laughs> Ross, welcome back. We're uh, so pleased to speak with you. And, you know, we won't, we won't do the whole, uh, uh, typical formative, uh, discussion about how you first met Sherlock Holmes. If people want to hear that story, they can go back and listen to those earlier episodes. But, um, let's talk about the Baker Street Almanac. Let's just jump right into it. What is it? All right. The Baker Street Almanac. Uh, well, it bills itself as, right on the cover, as an annual capsule of a timeless past and future. And if I may begin on a slightly serious point, respectful and serious point about this, this project was inspired in no small part by John Lellenberg and his work as a Sherlockian uh, and Doylean historian. Hmm. And... Uh, a big part of what this project is for is to capture year by year the kinds of things that John had to spend decades and innumerable hours gathering for his magnificent history of the early years of the Baker Street Irregulars. In other words, my hope is, uh, uh, and he would roll his eyes every time I would characterize it this way when I spoke with him about it, my hope is that John Lellenberg Seventh in the year 2525, we'll be able to turn to a shelf containing Baker Street Almanacs and pull one off the shelf for every year for which he or she or they uh, need some information. In other words, all the kind of stuff that John could have used uh, uh, but didn't have. Uh, And so, and in the same vein, if I may, the rule here is that this is a time capsule of a particular year. So, for example, the 2021 Baker Street Almanac is a capsule 
of the year 2020. And we are quite severe about this. Things that happen in 2020 get reported in the 2021 Almanac. And things that happen in 2021 have to wait until 2022. But there is an exception. And I think uh, if you uh, perchance have a copy of the Almanac in front of you and you turn to page 254, you will see that in John's honor, Linda and Terry Hunt were permitted to make an exception to the capsule rule. And the 2021 issue of the Baker Street Almanac does include a record for John Lellenberg. Mm. Oh, how nice. And I think John would have chuckled, and maybe somewhere is chuckling, at the idea that we strict historians of year-by-year Sherlockiana have violated our own rule for John Lellenberg. He would he would appreciate the irony, I'm sure. <laughs> I, um, I think he would appreciate the honor. No, that's, he will uh, absolutely. That's wonderful. Now, so I, did, I wanted so I wanted to get on the record that part of it, particularly since we had just been talking about you. You and Bert had just been talking about uh, about John. That's but good. What, the, what the Baker Street Almanac really is is an effort to encapsulate a year. Yeah. Uh, well, and when you when you think about what what John and other historians have typically done when they're doing research, typically, you know, prior to the 1990s, let's say, there are paper records. People wrote letters to each other, uh, typed or handwritten, uh, even telegrams uh, from time to time, or kept written manuscripts uh, before submitting them for typing. I mean, that that's even gone the way of uh, the dodo in some cases. Um, so, you know, in, in the particular modern era, in the 2020s, uh, 20, uh, 2000s, tw- uh, 200, uh, wow, I cannot get this out. <laughs> the aughts and, and the teens and the 20s, um, where we are more electronically engaged, there's less likely to be an actual history for people to search through in the future. So in 2525, as you say, Ross, when Dr. Zayas decides he wants to write that Sherlockian <laughs> history, uh, he's going to have a series of volumes here that he can go through year by year and track the progress. That's exactly right. And that's a, a big part of, of what this project is about. And uh, it has a couple of benefits. Uh, one of them is this sort of core sample quality to keeping this year-by-year record. If I have a website and, I, and I'm diligent about keeping it up to date, then in a sense, I'm also being diligent about wiping out the past. Every time I update the name of the president of an organization or the address of a, per, you know, a particular person or enterprise or what have you. Whereas the, the, the out-of-datedness of these print or, you know, or manuscript autograph uh, pieces of paper is part of what makes them valuable. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I want to get to the, the inner workings of the, the BSA in just a moment, but mm-hmm. your, your remarks there about websites being refreshed and they're not being a history. Well, the, the, the good news is for those who know how to make their way to internet.org and to find the Wayback Machine, you can find occasional, and it's not always systematic, it's occasional snapshots in time of what a website looked like. And you, you sent us a couple of links to uh, internet.org, and there's one in particular that I want you to talk about. Um, that was from their blog, and the question was, why preserve books? Yes, uh, I thought you might appreciate that. It's it's a it's a very interesting. What what is it? It's a video. Uh, the, the link is to a video recording of a tour that the founder and great mind behind Internet.org, Brewster Cayley, uh, did um, when. Uh, one of the Internet Archive warehouses was up and running, taking, you know, taking a group of people through and showing them how this thing works. And uh, what what Kaylee does at the beginning of the video is explain just roughly that, you know, in addition to some other things, that the Internet is great for recording and sharing things and for empowering many more people to learn more stuff. 
But books still have value and not just the value that comes from their their tactile relationship to we corporeal beings. There is, among other things, and perhaps most importantly, their relative authoritativeness. A big part of why the Internet Archive, why Internet.org is keeping warehousing in environmentally controlled shipping containers copies of all their books is because people mess with the Internet. Ah, and, and people update the internet. Right. Well, we've and we've people seen people mess think. with Wikipedia pages and whatnot uh, on the yes. fly. And I know our yes. friend Ira would probably uh, gets in a, in a tussle over that. <laughs> yes. And uh, a word that Kaylee has used more than once in the context of this particular Internet Archive project is authoritativeness. Mm. And so, if there is a dispute about what a book that is published on the web really says, you don't go to a website to find the answer. You crack open the shipping container containing that book. They've got them all barcoded and so on and so forth. And you pull out that original book and you look at the words on the page. And that is the authoritative version of this. Hmm. Uh, for those with a long attention span, if you watch all the way to the end of the Kaylee video. One of the things you'll find there is him having a conversation, uh, interestingly enough, having a conversation with a law school classmate and close friend of mine uh, about one of the other things that the Internet Archive archives, which huh. is the machines to read out-of-date <laughs> data storage things. Because it is... It, because. Preserving the, these authoritative things involves, a, I mean, how many people today have a Betamax on which to watch their beta tapes? Bert? <laughs> Bert. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Hold on a minute. I think it's under my laser disc. Wait, let me look. You know, I, I have to see about getting that Victrola taken out of my Model A because it keeps <laughs> it keeps skipping on these potholes over here. No, you're absolutely right. You know, I have, and I'm probably not unusual in this particular regard, but occasionally you'll open up a box and I found, you know, within the last couple of years, I found drives from a long defunct company or, or let's put it this way, evolved past the point of relevance to me. I Omega drives, you know, which were ways of storing files oh, in, yeah. in, in the ancient days when storage was actually expensive. Yeah. And I found somebody online to whom I could ship them and I would get my files back. But, uh, you know, it's, it's fabulous because, you know, th there is a lifespan to media storage. Yeah. Yes. And in fact, there is, this is one of these things where there is, it's, it's not the, the complete and the authoritative story, but there's a fella who's now actually, I believe, at the University of Michigan, Scott, named Paul Conway, who 25 years ago gave a talk called Preservation in the Digital World hmm. that contains a really famous little graph titled The Dilemma of Modern Media. <laughs> and it shows... Two lines. One is a solid line showing how long a, a particular media storage system survives, can survive, starting with clay tablets, which can survive for at least 10 and maybe 100,000 years, all the way up to modern stuff, right, which has a physical lifespan, optical readers and stuff like this, of maybe five or 10 years. That's one line, and it goes down over time. That's astounding. You know, then you, there's a dashed line that shows how much of human knowledge is currently stored in a particular medium, and it goes the other direction. That's crazy. <laughs> that now see the 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 whole dilemma there is you're storing more information on technology that becomes more and more defunct more quickly. Yes, yes, that's but scary. The, but, but this is the power of the book, because every year, humanity generates millions of new readers of books. They're called new humans. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to worry about whether we will have the technology to read the Strand magazine a thousand or two thousand or twenty thousand or a hundred thousand years from now. As long as we as a species survive, 
we will be able to read books. Mm. Mm. And so the relationship between the human being and the book is different from our relationship with any of these other storage media. We don't need an intermediary for any, sorry, wow, that, that had way too many R's, didn't it? We don't need, <laughs> we don't need an intermediary to engage with a book. That's why we have to save books. Now, yeah. now, now, before we get out of this part of the conversation and into the mechanics of the Baker Street Almanac, I have to ask you a question about the intent of the Almanac, because when I hear you say, that and and by the way, you know the the rationale here is exactly right for our listeners who aren't aware of the archival history series for the Baker Street Irregulars that John Lellenberg prepared. He did an enormous amount of research over a very long period of time to find letters to answer questions as to who was where at what meeting, what happened exactly over decades and decades. So it's absolutely valuable. But when you say the Baker Street Almanac 2021 is a compilation of everything that happened in 2020. How do you handle the event that comes undoubtedly immediately after you publish it when somebody pops up with something and says, gee, you know, I should have sent this to you and I, I don't have it. I mean, is that a concern of yours? Yes, it is. And I should be clear, this is the, the Baker Street Almanac is not a comprehensive collection. It is a capsule. It is an encapsulation of a year. So we're not trying to, we're not trying to print everything, right? We're not even tr trying to tell all the stories, but we are trying to get the, the essence of a year and a bunch of detail and how much that's that, this is where, this is where editing comes in, right? Yeah. Uh, in terms of what you're asking about though, Bert, right, is I, you know, I get an email, let's imagine I get an email this afternoon saying, you know, the, the, you know, Michael Keane held an important meeting of Baker Street Irregulars that somehow was missed. Mm. If you turn to, let me see if I can get this right here. Yes. If you turn to page two of the <laughs> Baker Street Almanac, you will find a new section of the editor's introduction titled Whispers of Norbury. <laughs> I love it. If we mess up, we will fix it next year. Because we will miss beats, in addition to which we will have typographical errors. Well, so, so the answer, Bert, is I hope that if we do miss something big, that someone will whisper Norbury and we'll, we'll, we'll correct the error. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's wonderful. That's great. Well, um, we're going to take a quick break here and have a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, we'll continue chatting about the Baker Street Almanac. Stay with us. The first Sherlock Holmes parody was probably written in 1896, The Field Bazaar, by Arthur Conan Doyle himself. He knew laughing was good for you. That's why the Wessex Press continues the tradition with The True Adventures of Sherlock Holmes by Terence Faherty. It's a rare collection of Watson's early first drafts, of the cases of Sherlock Holmes that will show you the truth behind the engineer's thumb and the strange insanity of General Waxbutton. Learn the actual facts behind the adventure of the notorious parasol chaser and astonish your friends when you tell them the man with the twisted lip actually struck it big as a part-time bustle fitter. Seven of these great stories have been published in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, and four appear here for the very first time in this very first collection. Now is the perfect time for a comfortable chair and a long laugh. Get the true adventures of Sherlock Holmes at wessexpress.com today. All right, we are back talking with Ross Davies about the Baker Street Almanac. And, uh, you know, Ross, as we went out to uh, to commercial there, I realized I called it the Baker Street Almanac, like the Baker Street Journal. Is it just Baker Street Almanac? Golly, I don't know. I, I, mean, on the <laughs> I mean, that's that's what it says on the spine and on the cover. But, I mean, how how are we to refer to this? Uh, I, 
I suppose you could refer to it either way, but I imagine, given, given this is clearly not one of those things that's been thought through very thoroughly. Well, maybe you can you can cover that in Norbury in uh, the, tw- the 2021. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sounds like a plan. We'll make well, a note about this. Well, to me, you know, when I first heard about the existence of an annual like this, an almanac, uh, I was immediately reminded of something I always saw in the basket of reading on the back of the toilet in my grandparents' bathroom. And that was the Farmer's Almanac. It's probably one of the most famous almanacs out there. Uh, talk to us about where you got your inspiration for putting this together. Well, the uh, the short-term inspiration is that the Green Bag, the publishing company that you mentioned at the beginning of the show that I that I I run, is a law publishing company that publishes its own annual called the Green Bag Almanac and Reader, which contains really three kinds of things: one, a year you know year in review sections; two, it contains examples of good legal writing from the past year. And three, to achieve exactly the purpose that the that that clearly the farmer's almanac achieved in your in in the in the basket on the back of your family toilet, we include in addition to the history of the year in law and a bunch of legal writing, a third theme that varies from year to year in order to inspire lawyers to keep the green bag almanac and reader in the basket on the back of their toilet. And some and so, but we we change it every year. So one year it'll be baseball, another year it'll be Thurgood Marshall, another year it'll be the Wizard of Oz. Uh, and uh, then in 2015, we did one about Sherlock Holmes, uh, which um, uh, went over so well with the Green Bag's readership that there was, for us, unprecedented demand to not move on. <laughs> wow. Uh, the, the, they did. They did not want us to try something else the next year. They wanted more Sherlock. So we did. The, so the first year, the main thing was the Norwood Builder. That's what it was centered around. So we. I, I'm, I feel like I'm. I'm portraying myself as a terrible breaker of my own rules between the John Wellenberg thing and now saying we always do something different every year. We we didn't do something different every year. We went back and we did another Sherlock Holmes almanac. It was about the, the Rygate Squires mostly. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's like giving an extra treat to a dog. Once the dog thinks the precedent is not, I get one treat, but I get as many treats as I want, right? The same readers, and there were a lot of them, came back and said, okay, so which Sherlock Holmes story are you going to do next year? And at that point, it was either this becomes the green bag Sherlock Holmes almanac and reader, or we do something else. Uh, and so like the tennis ball that you keep to deal with your dog when it gets too attentive. We created the Baker Street Almanac as a sort of a tennis ball for our, our Sherlockian enthusiast subscribers. And the Green Bag now publishes two almanacs. One is the Green Bag Almanac and Reader, which has moved on. And we, you know, we've done a volume on Whist. And uh, this past year, the one that just came out, in fact, was an Agatha Christie themed one. And, but, all our Sherlock enthusiasts are fine with that because we now also have the Baker Street Almanac, which does a new story, annotates a new story every year and has all sorts of other interesting Sherlockian material. So this was purely at the outset about answering customer demand. Well, that's the way to run a business, really. There you go. Um, and, you know, I should mention that uh, for those who have a subscription to the Green Bag, there are occasional bonuses that go out as well. Well, if you have a, an enhanced subscription, I believe. And, uh, one of them is a little, uh, a little, um, short book called rereadings. It's, uh, it's kind of a, a quarto size and, uh, in it is, uh, uh, stories and, um, uh, encounters that are all in the public domain. And of course, in the very first volume of rereadings, <laughs> you chose to put in the redheaded league, a Sherlock Holmes story. You know, yes. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. <laughs> so, well, well, that that is uh, that's wonderful. Where where you're seeing kind of the cross germination. We see this all the time, where people's professional and personal interests in Sherlock Holmes begin to uh, cross paths, and the creativity and the output that comes from that, uh, I think, is what the public benefits from. 
And I think that's fair to say. It's uh, 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 Sherlock Holmes, you know, the Sherlock stories and the whole universe that has sprung from 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 that generally does. It touches a lot of people. Yeah. It resonates with a lot of people. So it works. It works well both ways. You, you know, people bring their expertises to our Sherlockian world and Sherlock then helps helps us with other things we do. Now, I want to go through uh, some of the early days of the Almanac with you here. Uh, We were just talking before the show. Um, I I noted uh, an absence in my collection of the 2018 volume, and uh, it is accessible online. We'll have a link to uh, how to get to these Almanacs uh, electronically. Um, But really, there's nothing like having the physical version, too, so we'll have a link to those as well. but that, that first year was just a, a few pages. It was a pamphlet, as you said. The second year, uh, became, it became a full-blown publication. And when you, when you approach that 2019 almanac, you said, okay, we want to get everything in, in the year 2019. How did you begin thinking about, um, the, the sections you wanted and what was relevant and what might not be? How did you begin to approach that? Well, uh, the first thing I, that I was quite, quite sure of was that, uh, for, for, uh, the, the Lellenbergian scholar writing in 2525, there would be nothing more valuable than, uh, full access to Peter Blau's scuttlebutt from the Spermaceti Press. So the first thing I did was go to Peter Blau and say, will you license scuttlebutt for this book? And he said, certainly. He said, ha! Uh, yes, yes, actually, that's exactly what he said. <laughs> then he said, certainly. Uh, and, uh, in fact, I believe it's the introduction to the 2020 volume contains an explanation of, and this is entirely consistent with what we've just been talking about, and Peter, Peter approves of this wholeheartedly, this approach wholeheartedly, uh, what, what we do is we receive from Peter something very special that very few people get anymore, which is the ink-on-paper printed version of Scuttlebutt, which he mails out to a few people who don't want to read it on, you know, I mean, you have to pay for it, but because uh, there are costs associated with it for, for folks who don't want to read it online. The vast majority of people read it online. But that's how the, it started. It started as a print newsletter that people, uh, that Peter would assemble and mail out to, to subscribers. Yes, in fact, as I understand it from Peter, if I, and my memory may be imperfect, is my, well, my memory is imperfect and it may manifest its imperfection now. I think it started as something that he sent to John Bennett Shaw. It started as correspondence with, with Shaw. So other people they saw what Shaw it. was getting, right. right? And said, I want some of that too. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Sherlockians not being fools, at least not all the time. And, uh, but but now it's available on the Red Circle of Washington, D.C.'s website and via the hounds of the Internet. But he still prints out a print version. But, of course, the print version has imperfections or incompletions or incorrect URLs just because you know, we're all imperfect. So the version that's on the Red Circle website gets updated and corrected. So what, the, or, what you've got is the original then with all of its errors. <laughs> yes. And so what that means though, is that, <laughs> is that I have to myself digitize, you know, I scan all six or eight pages. It's always six or eight pages, all six or eight pages of Peter's printouts you know, frame them up properly, Photoshop them so that they're neat and readable and will be, you know, will come through the print process okay. And that is the core of the Baker Street Almanac. And in fact, I think it's the 20, again, I think it's the 2020 version. We even reproduce one of the envelopes in which he mails them as an indication of the value of our material culture because the one that we reproduce is the one for October of 2019. And Peter, being a perfectly reasonable and, you know, sort of budget conscious person, is 
reusing an envelope <laughs> from something else. <laughs> this this is the kind of history that must be preserved. Um, but uh, that's the core of the Baker Street Almanac. And in a sense, what we are doing is channeling Peter Blau. <laughs> we want to see everything. But that doesn't mean that we dump everything on everyone else. We share the things that we think people will appreciate. And so the, the heart of it is scuttlebutt. But then around that, we knew that we wanted, I knew, we wanted to uh, capture the sometimes long-term but sometimes mayfly existence of scions and independent societies, which mean which meant getting the ball rolling on getting a little story of the history of every scion for every year. And it would it, it may well always be impossible to capture every one every year, but you got to start somewhere. And so I just reached out to everyone I could to gather that information. Uh, and uh, we just started, we have a whole section devoted to that. And we do it uh, for the United States as one section, just because that's, there are so many of them. And then a separate section for international. Uh, and then, although I did it myself the first year, I knew it would go much better with um, uh, more resourceful, more likable, better organized people than me coordinating those parts of the book. And so part of the plan from early on was to identify people who would become editors dedicated to those categories. And we now have them. Monica Schmidt does the United States of America and Jay Ganguly does the rest of the planet. And starting, in fact, with this year, part of the planet that Jay covers is the ethereal part of the planet. So the things that are internet only are uh, you know, the organizations that are in it only are within Jay's jurisdiction as well. So they do that. Uh, and uh, so those, those are the, those are in some ways the, the two of the three big parts of this thing. One is scuttlebutt, two is the science, and then three is sort of year in review kinds of things for particular I'm not sure what the right word for this is. It's not congealed, uh, but it is co or concentrated. It's areas of focus in the Sherlockian world. So, you know, there have, for, for whatever reason, it's entirely understandable. We Sherlockians have always been hung up on pins, tokens, coins, things like this. And fortunately, for purposes of the Baker's Yard Almanac, there is Greg Ruby, who, if you took all of our enthusiasms for pins, coins and tokens and added them all up that would be how much enthusiasm greg has all by himself yeah i mean greg greg ruby is the original fungible guy yes there you go in a world of non-fungible <laughs> yeah. tokens he is fungible and and all <laughs> things fungible related relate to him <laughs> so greg writes a thing on i think we call it sherlockian numismatica or something like that every year that that runs through that uh there are other ones that i think will be long term but that we're on hiatus this year for understandable reasons. Heather Holloway is at the center of the Khan universe. We hope to have a, a you know a thing about cons every year. Uh, Emily Maranker, I don't know of anyone who is more knowledgeable and, and sort of enthusiastic about exhibitions and the public display of the arts than she is. And the idea is to have one of those for that kind of thing. Uh, Incidentally, if, if I may interrupt uh, on that, I saw a tweet this morning from Ashley Polisek that was a, a retweet of someone from England noting that the Van Gogh expedition, uh, expedition, exhibition in London, um, in the gift shop for sale, you can buy a rubber ear, an eraser, and, and it comes in a cardboard box. So it's, it's a great cross reference between the Van Gogh fans and, uh, and Sherlockian. So get over to the, uh, the exhibition there. Yes, indeed. And in fact, I believe Ashley's came with what, what sounded like a sort of a confession, but was also a call to action. Is what, she said something like, as a, as a true Sherlockian, I feel obliged to order several of these and mail them to my friends without explanation. Anonymously, yes. Or anonymously, yes. <laughs> well, yes. and, and, and Ross, that, that actually ties into something related to, I was fascinated with, because I, 
when I receive my Baker Street Almanac, it is so lovingly and carefully packaged. Of course, it comes in a green bag as a nod to, to the, the, to. Yeah. the major publisher. Um, but there is also something, uh, rather Sherlockian about it. And I was reading in this year's almanac about last year's and I let last year's languish on the shelf unopened for quite a while. And I thought, well, I, I guess I have to. So I snipped the, the, uh, the twine and I, I unwrapped the, the wrapping paper as careful as, carefully as I could because it was a wonderful reproduction, a large reproduction of a Sidney Paget portrait. And, uh, you know, I thought to myself, oh gosh, I've, I've broken the seal here. I've, I've actually ruined something that was just a work of art. And then in this year's <laughs> almanac, you provided the perfect justification as to why I should have done that in the first place. Can, can you yes. talk about that? Because I think it's a fascinating analysis. All right. I, I'd be happy to. Uh, and this actually, get, if I may, this is, this is, we, we've talked about the three main textual things that the Big Street Almanac is supposed to do. But there is a fourth element that's that we also want to be part of everyone, which is that each year should have some nifty freestanding things. One of which is uh, we try to have a history of some important institution within the Sherlockian world written by participants. Julie McCurris did one about the Norwegian explorers. Steve Doyle did one about Wessex Press. Um, Jesse Amalo and Cliff Goldfarb did one about the Conan Doyle, the friends of the Conan Doyle collection at the Toronto Public Library. So we have things like that that are special, not necessarily one-off, but special kinds of things. And that also takes a physical form. Each almanac comes with some extra stuff. And so uh, last year, the annotated story was the cardboard box. And so we got permission from, actually, it's the Toronto Public Library to reprint a poster size version of their pageant from Cardboard Box. And we did both sides. Sort of, it's a literal, complete reproduction. But we, but it's printed on very thin gift wrap type paper. Uh, but it's, but it's sort of the cheap kind of wrapping paper that you would wrap a cardboard box in if you were putting it in the post. And in fact, what happened was each Baker Street Almanac got wrapped in one of those sheets and then it had the appropriate address stamped on it with a rubber stamp. Uh, and then it was tied with, we, we couldn't actually find tarred twine. So we had to go with black hemp twine, but you know, tied it up and then put it in the green bag and shipped it off. Knowing that most Sherlockians would look at this and say, it has to remain pristine. <laughs> I was actually, How? I was looking at the knot and trying to discern if it was a nautical knot that was tied in it. Did you go to that length? Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> I have, I have the correspondence with, and remember what we're talking about here is, is a sailor, right? So uh, right. who is, who, who is the senior sailor? In the Baker Street Irregulars. Uh, Michael, Michael Quigley. Quigley. Peter Blau oh, was in the Of course Navy. he was. He is the senior, senior officer. Senior, yes. right. So I have in the files for last year's Baker Street Almanac, the correspondence between the Baker Street Almanac and Peter Blau about the appropriate knot. What knot would have been tied? That is the knot that is tied on your package. Right? And I had emails yeah, not surprisingly, early on from a couple of Sherlockians who said it was really hard to untie that package, but I managed it. To which I responded, you got to go back and retie it because in the cardboard box, the twine has been cut and it had to be cut in order for the knots to be there for Sherlock Holmes to detect. Exactly. So the idea there is that there is this sort of this this relationship we're trying to build with our readers on with a Sherlockian spirit that when we do a cardboard box thing that's tied up with twine of course the twine should be cut because that's what happened in the story <laughs> this year right, we have the uh, uh, the adventure of the Priory School 
And it is, of course, thoroughly annotated by Ira Matetsky, who is our the, the fourth of the current editors, right? And he edits the uh, the annotated stories, <clears throat> and he enlists a, a whole slew of first-rate people to, to write annotations for the stories. But one of the passages in the Priory School uh, involves uh, this uh, this business of uh, what what happens you know to to the young man, right? And they discover his cricket cap, <laughs> which has a it's a dark blue cap with a white chevron on the peak. And we don't annotate it in the story purely for the fun of it, purely for the fun of the moment we are about to have now, which is that if you ask the average human being where the chevron goes on the hat, they will say, of course, it goes right on the top right here, right? But if you go look up the word peak in the Oxford English Dictionary, look at the first edition, so you're looking at the one that, that Watson or Conan Doyle would have been looking at, you will find that the peak of a cap is the brim. And so the chevron has to be on the brim of the cap. And the own, and you cannot, you cannot get a modern baseball cap or cricket cap manufacturer to put a logo on the on, brim. On the brim, yeah. They only put them on the crown of the hat. So how do you get a chevron onto the peak of a dark blue cap? Or of a blue, it doesn't say dark blue, it says blue cap. <clears throat> the only way to do it is to go with a printed paper golf visor. Because they can print them on the, on, on the peak, on sure. the brim. Sure. And so Sherlockians, with their 2021 Baker Street Almanac... Don't get an annotation explaining all of this, but they do get an explanation in the form of an actual chevron peaked, you know, chevron, chevroned peak. <laughs> or I'm not sure where, I'm not <laughs> sure where the past tense goes, but <clears throat> in any event, the, uh, there is a chevron on the peak che of the a hat. A chevroned peak? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, a chevroned peak cap. If one can chevron a peak, yeah. Yes. Um, I, I, I don't know if this was intentional. I received two in mine. Oh, but we are all Sherlockians. If you use one, then it will no longer be perfect. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. I love it. So, so yes, yeah. everyone, everyone gets two. That is fantastic. This is, and, and this is, this is the benefit of, uh, getting the print version of the almanac as intended. You know, if we're yes. going to chronicle something uh, for a year, um, yeah, we can go back and, and read whatever it is online. But as we were saying before, who knows if we're going to be able to do that? And when we do pick up the print copy, to be able to have that uh, that accompaniment to it, uh, to complement what it is that's being written about that year. So, I mean, I, I think these are, are, are wonderful, Ross. Are there other Easter eggs Hidden throughout that people need to look out for. Uh, well, there 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 are some. Well, for, I shared what I think of as, in some ways, the most important one already: mm -hmm. the, the entry for John Lellenberg for twenty twenty one. That is uh, that is an intentional anomaly in this book. This book is the cover says it's an it's a it's a capsule of the past year, or the you know it's supposed to be a capsule twenty twenty. It has a twenty twenty one Easter egg in it. Uh, it. Uh, it has the the visors in it. Uh, the uh, the the other I mean the other sort of obvious Easter egg in this one is you should have two postcards in there. I do. Which are uh, uh, the uh, basically return of Sherlock Holmes era uh, uh, dividend notices <laughs> for a, I believe it's a. A, a bond and a debenture for the Canadian Pacific Railway, which is the CPR from the adventure of Black Peter. And again, this is one of these things that's part of the, you know, a few added extras. And the, the history there is that uh, Hartley Nathan wrote a chapter about the Canadian Pacific Railway, about Tri-CPR or Tri-Canadian Pacific Railway for the uh, 
Glenn Maranker's edited BSI Press Manuscript Series volume about the adventure of Black Peter. And Hartley and I had corresponded a bunch about that. Uh, and neither one of us could find anywhere any contemporaneous material about the Canadian Pacific Railway. Hmm. But for just mostly out of laziness, I had left my eBay wish searches up for Canadian Pacific Railway for years. And eventually these things showed up. And so we decided that he would write a little ditty about it for the, for, for the Baker Street Almanac, which is in there, which would also then be a vehicle for sharing with all the Baker Street Almanac purchasers, uh, recipients, uh, these basically Canadian Pacific Railroad. I mean, it's not, it's not the securities themselves, but it is the dividend notices, right? Yeah. Uh, which is really all that Nelligan's customers would have wanted anyway. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, now, um, Ross, before we get you know too far away from this, I have to ask you, among these sections, and you've alluded to this a couple of times, there is an annotated story, an annotated article. And the green bag, of course, as you pointed out, had recently – Secret Adversary by Agatha Christie, annotated by a large number of people. Considering the degree to which the cases of Sherlock Holmes have been annotated by Bill Barry Gould and by Les Klinger and by other people, what was your thinking about creating um, a new, yet another annotated version of the story and including it in the almanac? Well, the the the, uh, the birth of this idea, it was... It was the ambition was born in ignorance. Uh, I, I came to the I came to the Norwood Builder and the, as it appeared in the original Greenbag Almanac and Reader, perfectly unaware of the existence of Leslie S. Klinger, because I had never been part of the Sherlockian world. So I set off down this road at my usual measured, well thought out clip, <laughs> and along the way I scoop up. I, I scoop up, you know, Klinger, and then it turns out there's more Klinger, and of course there's Bering Gould, and then there are you know all sorts of other people who've done you know other bits and pieces of this, but there's no one to compare to Klinger, right? And at that point, I get in touch with Klinger. I call, I you know, I introduce myself to Les Klinger, and I say, you know, I'm doing this thing, <laughs> and what I want to do is, and if you go back and look at it, actually, if you even look at the one that's in that, the almanac that you have in front of you, the Baker Street Almanac, what I want to do is introduce my readers to the whole range of what goes on with this. And so what I want to do is annotate the story by referring my readers to your good work, where you have already done the annotation where Owen Dudley Edwards and his team at Oxford have already done it. I refer to them. And so it, the, the, the green bags and the Baker's Almanacs annotations are filled with references to LSK colon ANN for his annotated, right? And LSK ref for his reference library. And we are not reinventing the wheel. What we're doing is adding where there is room for more. And so that is how we ended up approaching this. And it has turned out, A, to be uh, at least I mean, he's a very, very nice, gentle man. So he may well just be being kind. Uh, but he says that the work is OK. Uh, <laughs> and um, which which at least for my work, that qualifies as high praise. Um, and uh, he's uh, very good natured about it. Uh and the, but the true test, in fact, is coming in 2022. Because, and I think this is the first time this has been announced, but I'm sure Ira would not mind. Ira has selected the adventure of the Abbey Grange for the 2022 almanac, which is Les Klinger's investiture in the Baker Street exactly, Irregulars. Exactly. So we're taking on the Abbey Grange, the story, not the man. So, uh, so that is the plan. A good plan. Thank you. 
Well, Ross, uh, this is uh, fantastic. I mean, we, we could we could pick apart the almanac. Uh, I'm sure for another few hours with you, but I think we've we've given people enough to uh, whet their appetite or at least uh, pique their curiosity. Uh, if not their Chevron, uh, and <laughs> and uh, get them over to uh, where where should they go to uh, to subscribe to or order a copy of the Baker Street Almanac? Well, if you go to www.greenbag g r e e n b a g dot o r g, you can find your way because there you'll find a button that says Almanacs, and if you click on that button. You'll go to a pointy finger that will point you to the Baker Street Almanac. Excellent. Well, we will we will make sure that link is up there uh, in the show notes as well as links uh, to you know, other subsections there. Because the the beauty of that is, if you go to the Green Bag main website, there are all sorts of goodies that you can find yourself. It's a rabbit hole or a series of rabbit holes that you can find yourself in, and um, and 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 poke around to your heart's content. Uh, Ross Davies, thank you so much for sharing the passion for what you do and the output that, you know, we all get to be the beneficiaries of. Thank you very much, Scott. And thank you, Bert. It's been a pleasure. It's amazing how important the Baker Street Almanac has become in its very short life. And as we were talking earlier with Ross, 2018, you know, was really just a little pamphlet. And it's amazing the number of people that are involved. It's amazing the preparation and organization. It's amazing the quality of the finished product. It's amazing the content, the foresight, the fact that it's also, in addition to a print version available for you to read for free, and what's what's last thing that's amazing is that Reno Ross manages to do this while he's running a publishing enterprise for the um, uh, law community very successfully. And unless people forget that we mentioned this, uh, happens to be a professor of law. Uh, at the same time, you know, with students and, and caseloads and curricula to worry about. So it's astonishing. It's just astonishing. You know, uh, friends, if any of you are thinking about entering a career of law, uh, let Ross's success go straight to your head, uh, lest it go to his. And uh, you, you can do a lot of things. No, I, I think, you know, just as we were, we were talking with Ross, and by the way, um, we do have – not some outtakes, but some bonus content of uh, an additional uh, bit of conversation that we had together, you and I, Bert, as well as with Ross, uh, that our supporters and subscribers can uh, partake in. And again, just a reminder, if you go to patreon.com slash I hear of Sherlock or hit that become a patron button on the show notes to this episode, you can have access to that special bonus content. Um, you know, Ross was uh, intuiting that, uh, you know, it's not a one-man job, obviously, delegating some of this, uh, these tasks to other people. But, boy, the, the creativity that goes into this, the design, you know, I mean, throughout the year, those who are connected with the BSI or with Ross for one reason or another uh, occasionally get postcards. And we talked with Ross on episode 137 about boxes from royalty. And he, it, it was a box filled with these wonderful cards uh, that were just so artistically designed. Um, he has an eye for this kind of thing. He has a creative bent that brings, I think, much more nuance and much more uh, flavor to this than a very dry listing of a bunch of things that happened on certain dates. You know, and that's the magic of Ross's work in the Baker Street Almanac. Well, you may recall us speaking to playwright David McGregor here on episode 140. The good news is our friends at MX Publishing now have some of David McGregor's work in stock. Three new books by David McGregor, including 
Sherlock in Love, the Holmes Adler Mysteries. These are a triptych of plays that first appeared at the Purple Rose Theater in Chelsea, Michigan. The Adventure of the Elusive Ear, The Adventure of the Fallen Souffle, and The Adventure of the Ghost Machine. All three are creative and bring Holmes into contact with other people whom you may have heard of, including Vincent Van Gogh, Auguste Escoffier, and Tesla and Edison. Adding to the other group of books is David's two-volume series, Sherlock Holmes, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. In these books, David takes us on a journey through the late 1800s, early 1900s, through the end of the 20th century and into the 21st, as Sherlock Holmes has been played by so many different actors and was brought to life by so many different forces. David takes us through these various times and introduces us to names that you may be familiar with and names that may be new to you. All three of these books are available at mxpublishing.com today. Ah, you know what that music means. It can be only one thing. There's a sale in the men's department. No, sorry. It means it's time for everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show. That's right. It's Canonical Couplets, where we give you two lines of poetry, and you give us your best guess at which Sherlock Holmes story we are talking about. The last time around in these parts, we gave you this clue. A furtive physiologist who now ignores his secretary will owe his life to Watson in a case that's cautionary. Bert, do you know which Sherlock Holmes tale we're talking about? I do, I do. It's a famous story. That is the case where Holmes's brother, Mycroft, brings him a client who helps Victorian inventors explain their work. That's the case called The Adventure of the Geek Interpreter. <laughs> oh, beware of geeks bearing gifts, I always say. And thank you for the gift of your humor, Bert Walder. But um, I would love, love, love the gift of a correct answer at some point. <laughs> that would be even better. <laughs> I'm trying as trying as hard as I can. You're doing you're doing okay. You're doing okay. Well, um as we are used to in these parts, uh, that is not correct, Bert. No. no uh okay. the answer Oh, and before I I do give the correct answer, we did of course once again uh get a a faithful response from Eric Deckers. I don't know what we would do uh, without him. He says, "It's the story of the noted physiologist Professor Presbury." who's afflicted with a strange disease that causes him to walk through the streets of Soho looking for a big dish of beef chow mein. It's the werewolves of Camford. On second thought, no, that doesn't sound right, Eric says. I believe it's actually the adventure of the creeping man. Why, yes, Eric, that is that is correct. Thank you for... <laughs> For clarifying that. So, uh, in order to choose someone who did submit The Creeping Man, uh, we will once again turn to the big prize wheel and give it a spin. Oh, boy. Lots of numbers going by. And it looks like it is settling on number eight. Number eight. Well, low number this time. And our, our winner is... David Rosenbaum. David, congratulations. We do appreciate you. And I should note that with his quiz entry, David also wanted to reference the physics of transfixing the pig that we had mentioned with regard to Black Peter in a recent episode. He said, don't forget that Black Peter wasn't really transfixed himself. And the impression one gets upon reading the story, is that Black Peter was actually in the process of attacking Peter Carey when it happened. So, David oh. writes, I think the comparison is apt. Oh. What do you know about that? Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Well, I don't know. If somebody's actually going to read the cases of Sherlock Holmes, doesn't that take a lot of the fun out of it? Oh, well, <laughs> never. Let me, wait a minute. Let me edit that remark out. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, David, we do have uh, some copies of some books about Conan Doyle for you. We have The Life of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle by John Dixon Carr and The Real World of Sherlock Holmes, The True Crimes Investigated by Arthur Conan Doyle, as uh, written by Peter Costello. Uh, so thank you for your contribution. We will be getting those copies off to you ASAP. And we thank Tony Quatrochi for the generous uh, in-kind donation of those materials. We uh, He is really keeping our uh, vaults flowing with all kinds of Sherlockian prize material. So stay tuned because uh, this episode, we do have a prize for you, not supplied by Tony, but by Mr. Ross Davies himself. It is a copy of the BSI, excuse me, the BSA, the Baker Street Almanac for 2021. Now, if you would like to have a chance to win that prize, then feast your ears on this. An unmarked body and diabolical agency will require Watson to act tenaciously. If you think you know the answer to this canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment at IHearOfSherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose you at random, you will win. Good luck. Well, I think we've done it again here, Bert. This is one for the history books. (laughs) Oh, really? No, it's one for the almanac. We have to. Luckily, I've been transcribing everything we've talked about in real time. So I'm now able to fax it to Ross so that he can he can scan it and get it prepared for the uh, 2022 Baker Street Almanac. Well, you know what? I mean, that's interesting because I gosh, I was trying to think of a quote I had seen uh, last year about the written word enduring. You know, the spoken word is ephemeral, but the written word endures or the written word remains. I think it's an ancient quote. Mm-hmm. And you think about, you know, the conversations that the great philosophers were having on the street corners of, of Athens and, you know, some of the, the great minds of the past. Well, thankfully, with the invention of the printing press, a lot of this stuff uh, has been documented. And, you know, let's not get into the tragedy of the Alexandria fire of the Alexandria library. Um, but so much of history is written down, and that's where having transcripts of episodes like this that we will put out as part of uh, the support that we get from our patrons, um, that's why this is important. And hopefully these transcripts will one day be available to people who can't necessarily listen to the show and hear your dulcet tones, Bert. <laughs> Well, you're right. It is absolutely a priority. It's an important cultural record. It's important record for a variety of reasons. And I'm reminded of the sad story of the scholar who once obtained a fragment of a manuscript of a palimpsest from the Alexandrian Library only after considerable study and research to discover that it was a uh, checkout card and that the manuscript was 7,000 years overdue. <laughs> well, this is the completely overdue Scott Monty. And I'm the oddly remaindered Bert Wolder. <laughs> and together we say the, the game's afoot. <laughs> the, the game's afoot. <laughs> I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I am neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be my dear fellow. Very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes.